0: Welcome to the Diplowoman Podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Eknekchi, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the Women, Peace, and Security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diploman Podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut and is made possible by the generous support of UN women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diploman Podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Mina al in this seventh episode of the Diplo woman podcast, Mina is the editor in chief of The National. She's the first woman editor in chief of The National. She was also the assistant editor in chief, the first female assistant editor in chief of Al Sharq al Awsat, where she currently is still a columnist. She also writes for foreign policy. Mina is a Yale World Fellow, and she was selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Mina's here with us today to discuss. The situation in iraq the recent elections and where women stand or sit in iraqi politics minar raibi welcome to the diplomat podcast and thank you for being with us thank you for having me karma
1: i'm a fan of the podcast so it's great
0: to be hosted on it thank you thank you mina so tell us um how do you view the recent elections where are we in iraq after, you know, 18 years of turmoil, of instability. How do you see the future of this country, which is, by the way, where you are originally from?
1: That's right, I am originally from there. And Iraqis will always hold out hope for Iraq, in the same way that the Lebanese hold out hope for Lebanon, even when things seem very, very dire. And so when you look at Iraq today, you can look at the Cup half full or the cup half empty. In a way, the fact that this is the fifth election cycle where there is a transition of power expected to happen and with so far minimal violence, there's always the specter of violence, the ghost of violence but so far isn't there. That's an important transition over the last 18 years. However, the political system has failed to deliver for the Iraqi people and so it is much more glass half full because actually The political system and the elections start to become a fig leaf for the failure and the dysfunction that is at the heart of how Iraq is being governed. So one of the first takeaways from these elections is that voter turnout is really only about 36% of eligible voters. That's
0: quite low. That's quite low for for these elections.
1: Absolutely, considering that in the first cycle of elections, where people had a lot more optimism and believed in, in the possibility of change through the ballot box, you had about almost 70% of voters, eligible voters voting. So when mm-hmm. you look at being halved in a space of about 15 years, because of course the elections weren't immediate, it took some years after the invasion for it to start, it, there, there is a sharp contrast there. And so this is the lowest voter turnout you've had, and the low voter turnout wasn't a matter of people not being bothered, but rather it was a protest vote. It was (laughs) a way for the ordinary Iraqi to say, I will not give my vote because I will not rubber stamp a process that ultimately is leading to different political parties carving up the riches of Iraq amongst themselves. The biggest problem, of course, we face is corruption, and while during the election campaign you had a lot of uh, mainly male uh, voices saying we will fight corruption, we'll fight corruption, there's no real uh, clear party program of how they would do that, and actually most of the people who are claiming they would fight corruption are themselves embroiled in many corruption cases. And so at the moment, of course, post elections, we see some important trends, Uh, the final results will take some time, the government Mm -hmm. formation will take some time, but there are certainties that have already appeared. One certainty is that for the first time, you actually have independents that were able to secure seats in Parliament. Uh, imtidad, which is the movement that came out of the October 2019 protest movement. Again, the echoes of what happened in Lebanon in terms of the protest movements in both countries, wanting, a, a, first of all, a country that functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, the slogan in Iraq's process was Nurid Watan, we want a homeland, we want a home that actually works, um, but also a pushback against Iran. You had many voices calling for Iran to stop being involved in Iraq's internal affairs and to fight corruption. And so Tidad, which has a number of prominent voices from the, uh, the protest movement, was actually able to secure about 10 seats. Again, the results are not exactly final. And that's important. We haven't had that before.
0: So this is unprecedented. And amongst these independents, do we see uh, female faces? Do we see women? And um, in, whether in the, in the nominations or in the candidacies or in the, you know, uh, kind of rounding up and, and, and uh, working on the elections and campaigning, do we see more women faces? Because in the protests in 2019, you know, we saw these women, you know, there were visible uh, women who were at the forefront of these uh, protests. Uh, did we see them uh, working on the elections in Iraq?
1: So there were more female candidates than there have ever been in the Iraqi elections. And so far, about 97 seats in parliament will go to women out of the 329 seats in parliament. So that's, you're talking about 29 to 30 percent of the seats. Now, it's interesting because Iraq has a quota system.
0: Exactly. I was going to say we have a quota system in Iraq, and that has actually helped this temporary special measure has allowed you know for women to enter the political arena right
1: so the positive thing is you've actually got about four to five percent more than that so you're looking at 29 to 30 percent which is positive however in amongst the independents there were less women
0: mm-hmm. in
1: part because of the security situation you had a number of activists killed female voices being silenced due to security concerns so actually there are less amongst the independents there are others That are vocal within, uh, particularly Islamist uh, Shia parties, that feel that they have the protection of the party machine and went out and were much more vocal. But you did have some new uh, Iraqi young female candidates in a number of cities uh particularly it was very interesting to see in Mosul, uh, which is only just recovering from uh the terrible devastation after isis you know very young uh fresh faces female faces that went out that campaign a lot of them unfortunately didn't make it but the fact that they were there and they did get some votes exactly thousands of votes each of them but they weren't enough to meet the threshold so that was that was also a positive change that came through this electoral cycle. Hopefully, next time we'll we'll have more of those independent voices actually make it to parliament.
0: So, in your view, uh, Mina, what are the uh, major barriers? I mean, we spoke about you know uh, how there's corruption in the country and there has been you know turmoil uh, for many years. But what do you feel are the major barriers, specifically, in the that, that pose an obstacle to women to to be more active in politics, to enter the political uh, sphere? in Iraq?
1: The number one barrier is security. Mm -hmm. Uh, Assassinations continue to happen in Iraq. Uh, Kidnappings continue to happen in Iraq. Intimidation continues. So the number one obstacle is security, partly for the women themselves and partly their families will discourage them. In an attempt to protect them, they will say, please don't get involved in politics unless, again, there's a big machine that can try to protect them. So I would say security is the absolute number one impediment. After that comes... Uh, societal pressures now let's not forget Iraq was the first Arab country to have a female judge uh, we were the first to have a minister this is you know again we're talking about in the 1950s right so Absolutely. it's not that women haven't been active in the public sphere the problem now is that culturally you have a lot of unfortunately religious forces mm-hmm. that have come to the fore and that have tried to push women out of their natural place in the public sphere and in Iraq. And so that's become another obstacle. I would say a third obstacle is, is raising funds. And one of the problems we have in Iraq for both men and women is that there is actually no clear legitimate ways to um, raise funds to right. be involved in political parties. So often they're beholden to, again, these big political parties that they may not adhere to and so forth. So you get a lot of politicized uh, voices coming in rather than women who would who'd come up the ranks. And there are many others, but I'd say these are the three primary, bar- primary barriers with really security being the number one.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because when the Arab world, you know, when we have these discussions about barriers, in the face of women political participation, the societal norms or the patriarchy is usually the first, you know, barrier that is that is mentioned. But it, your answer really shows how advanced, in fact, uh, Iraq is when it comes to, you know, um, women's rights or, you know, the, the, the fact that women feel that they can actually contribute and that really those are not the primary primary barriers that are standing in their way. You know, you have a quota system. Uh, I know countries in the region that that are still struggling to introduce a quota system I know, for instance, in Lebanon, the debate is currently going on, and most political parties in Lebanon are, are almost, you know, avoiding the discussion even uh, about a quota. And here we are in Iraq, you know, we have not only a quota system, but the numbers that uh, have been, uh, you know, um, numbers of the number of women who have gained access to parliament this time are actually beyond what the quota allows for so this is really fascinating uh, for me to hear and i think many many of our listeners will be sort of surprised to to hear that because also when you say security is you know the, the primary barrier in a sense it also shows the situation for everyone in iraq it's not only for the women that there's a security issue you know this is a a problem everyone is is facing but speaking of peace and speaking of 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 instability and and security um how much do you see women being involved in this aspect of iraq society are women involved in peace and security do you see that there is that um you know, thirst uh, for women to participate in the dialogue processes that are happening, the national dialogue processes that are happening in the country. I mean, this episode uh, comes at the, uh, at the 21st anniversary of the Women, Peace and Security agenda that we celebrate uh, every year. How do you see this um, peace and security agenda tying in with uh, the, the Iraqi situation today and the role of women?
1: so unfortunately not enough women hardly any women actually are involved in negotiations and peacemaking in iraq mm-hmm. they've really been sidelined they haven't been given a voice right but they're not the only ones again independence young people don't get a chance to take part it's usually led either by strong political parties or tribal elders that often mm-hmm. keep women very much to the side so unfortunately iraqis haven't had the opportunity to have Fresh voices, uh, strong societal voices, being involved in the peacemaking. But I just want to go back on the on the security element. You're right; security is an issue for both men and women, but it's mm. I think much more pronounced for women. Uh, one is because they can be easily targeted, not only targeted uh, in terms of bodily harm, mm-hmm. but also targeted with character assassination. They start to be, you know, tainted in a certain way, and where actually patriarchy is very much alive. I mean, sadly, all over the world, and we've seen this happen to female politicians all over the world. And Iraq, very much so. You know, one picture can be can be the end of a woman's political career, so to speak. So that is still very much there, and that becomes almost an excuse to then target her actual physical security. So, so I do think it 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 stands out more. But to your point about peacemaking, I think Iraq would have a much greater chance if women were given a role, but they're not, they haven't been involved in any efforts for conflict resolution, Mm -hmm. Um, even on the low level. Unfortunately, it's almost predominantly held by men.
0: That's unfortunate. And we hope in the coming years, uh, we see a shift in that scene, uh, I hope. uh, And um, Mina, I want to touch a little bit upon uh, something that we've discussed this before, which is public discourse and uh, how this ties in the politics of Iraq, um, you know, in the Arab world in general, and the role of women in, in media and how, um, you know, especially this is, we're, we're speaking with you. I mean, you're the expert on this matter. And, and I, I'm curious if you can share with us a little bit your views on this and how we can sort of work together as different, you know, in a multi-stakeholder approach to be able to correct or rectify this distortion in public discourse? You're
1: right that there is a distortion and there's a distortion on a multitude of levels, uh, regionally and globally, everything from, you know, what has a 24 hour news cycle, internet, social media, uh, user generated content led to in terms of public discourse. That's one element And of course, Iraq, like all other countries are impacted by it. But importantly, Iraq after 2003, one of the first things that happened is you had proliferation of different media outlets, Uh, newspapers, there were within six months over uh, 240 newspapers, some newspapers were only six pages, eight pages, sorry, eight pages, and some were no bumper pack, and of course, TV stations and radio stations, but then what happened very quickly is that political parties, again, because they were able to get into the system and and actually have the money through corrupt means usually to run uh, TV stations, they became very politicized. So even though we have a multitude of media outlets, they're all actually in large part working towards a political agenda. and, and that's really hurt the public discourse in Iraq. The other issue that's happened is in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime is, yes, people can go out and speak. Uh, you can speak on TV. Um, you know, it, it's almost gone to the other extreme.
0: There's more freedom of expression and more outlets to, to speak. Right. There's more freedom of expression,
1: but there's less responsibility. OK, so for what you actually say. But what's problematic and what's happened in Iraq that you can go out and say, here are documents, I can prove that X, Y, and Z took money from this company. Mm -hmm. And there's no law enforcement. So actually, it's made it more problematic, because people are even more aware, and you're going out and declaring these things, but then there's no one to hold them accountable. And if we talk about public discourse, and how it affects women, also, we haven't really been able to raise the bar on how we discuss women's issues, women, women's rights in, the, in in Iraq and so forth, partly because everyone's thinking about the most immediate, which is again, security, security. electricity, food, right? And, and, and so we haven't been able to lay, raise the level of public discourse to say, what do we want for the country? What do we want for young girls and women going forward and so forth? We're nowhere near there, unfortunately. And there really isn't the space. And so you ask the question of what is the responsibility or what more can we do? It's to create that space, right? To make these stories matter. Uh, There's a small little collective in of women that started their own little media outlet called Lotus, and it talks about women's issues and so forth, but it's very insular. It hasn't been able to break beyond the immediate circle of people who work on it and and their supporters, but there are all these small pockets that always give you hope and say, okay, well, let's support them. Let's give them a platform. Let's elevate their voices Um, rather than get caught up in the political firestorms that are consistent and that make headlines, but actually don't take the country much further or raise the level of public discourse.
0: I mean, I know you're doing your part in this and uh, allowing uh, for space or creating space and and creating platforms uh, for women's voices uh, to to be more, to be heard. Um, My question to you is, what can we all do in terms of whether academics or policymakers, together with uh, you know um, our our friends at the media, our uh, multilateral institutions that have a lot of interest in this, what are some of the ideas that we can explore together uh, to achieve you know uh, more? Um, sort of to give more space to women for their voices to be heard. And my second uh, question that I want also to, if you can just give me your two cents on, you pointed the issue of funding and this keeps on coming up. Every time we talk about, you know, how we can empower more women, how we can, well in politics, I, I mean, I'm specifically focusing on politics and peace and security. The issue of funding keeps coming up. So it's either, you know, political parties don't prioritize women, so therefore, very little funds trickle down uh to the women in in those parties or generally in politics or it's you know short-term and medium-term investments that you know frickle out with time and you know there are other priorities that come up so what are some of the things that we can do uh to increase uh, funding uh for women in in politics and peace and security really
1: big questions there karma I'm going to try um, the first one about you know elevating those voices and giving more women space I think there's there's three approaches so one is for young women who don't have enough experience to give them that experience so be it internships be it jobs be it giving them a platform to write and giving them the confidence because we see quite often women will think that they're you know they don't have experience so why would their opinion matter they don't have enough of an authority so let them build up how they can have an authority and why they are authoritative on whatever they may speak so that's really important and tied in with that is mentorship um, there are Absolutely. different mentoring groups and it makes such a difference to just hear someone out and say, you know, yeah, and that's what I see is very important for my role. For example, you know, I have, I have colleagues, both male and female. I always try to mentor, especially the younger ones, but I particularly understand for some of the young women and say, listen, when I was, you know, your age, or when I was first starting out with my career, there were certain insecurities that may happen. It doesn't mean they have exactly the same, I'd say, this is how I tried to approach them. So I think talking about it also and saying, yes, There are certain things that are different for women than men, particularly in our part of the world, right? So there are everything from occasions that happen that are late into the night that a lot of young girls when they first graduate from university, even their families won't be so keen on them to be out and about and attending these late night dinners and so forth. And how do you prepare yourself and how do you, you know, act in a a workspace environment where actually the men or the women may not appreciate, you know, having a younger, uh, more beautiful woman around and, 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 you know, and, and helping them navigate that these are very real problems and that a woman could step back, a young woman or girl may step back from. So that's that's one thing. The second, so the mentoring and the kind of speaking about experience. And the second thing is that giving of the platform, giving jobs, creating internships and so forth. The third element that I think is really important is saying, well, why does it actually matter to have these female voices? Because it's not charity. It's not we're doing it because we think, you know, that'll make us look good. It's to actually say it's a very valid role that women play, regardless of age, you know, at different stages, and the impact they have on society and the wider society and so forth. And so giving them their right, rather than making it seem like, oh, we're going to do this, because it looks good that we're, you know, CSR almost,
0: it's not, right? Yeah, it's not tokenism, It's it's really inclusive right. decision making, it's inclusiveness, right at the core.
1: Absolutely. Um, in terms of the funding, the funding is a very difficult one because it depends who you and then this is across the board. This is for men, women, media outlets, whatever it is, you know, where your funding is and how it comes through is very difficult. And Unfortunately, we're at a time in the, in the region It has been true for some time that if you get external funding, you know, European Union is known, the Canadians are known otherwise. If you're getting external foreign government funding, it really becomes in some parts of the Arab world a target on your back.
0: Absolutely. And, you're labeled.
1: Right. You're labeled. Exactly. So but it is about educating Uh, young women but also men but particularly young women about the opportunities that are there for foundations um, that that it doesn't have to be government funding so much there are foundations there are institutions that create funds that they can uh, they can benefit from but it's not only about direct funding it's also scholarship opportunities you know sometimes I think if I step back and do nothing but Reach out to young um, uh, Arabs and particularly women and say, listen, there is this opportunity at these universities that are looking for people. And this is how you apply and teaching them the skills, how to apply for funding and how to be part of that. That's important. But ultimately, we have to start in our own countries creating those funding opportunities. We can't keep looking abroad and saying, "Okay, they'll come upon because of all the reasons that we've discussed. Absolutely. It's It's not it's not necessarily always aligned with what the country needs and so forth. And so it is up to our big corporations in the region. There, there, there's vast amount of wealth in the region. We shouldn't be looking outside of it, right?
0: I agree. I agree. So it's what the- about, what about? let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Diaspora have a role to play. Um, I mean, you have a huge diaspora, just like, you know, the Lebanese have a huge diaspora. The Syrians have a, every country that has been faced with conflict and turmoil, you know, has produced a huge diaspora that's, has been successful oftentimes. So how do you see the role of the Iraqi diaspora playing not only into the political scene in your country, uh, but also in empowering the women of Iraq?
1: It's a really good question. I think the Iraqi diaspora, like all diasporas, have a very complicated relationship with their home country. And
0: so while- love and hate? There's a love and hate relationship yeah. there, isn't it's there? There's a
1: love and hate, and there is a survivor's guilt. Right, 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 right. So many Iraqis have survivors' guilt, and there's a sense that if they're abroad, are they really can they legitimately have a role to play within their own country? you know, they've left, they haven't gone through the same suffering. Do they have the right? You know, I am one of those people that for years wouldn't be like, yeah, okay, I am I am Iraqi, but I left Iraq when I was six and I don't go back that often. And I was almost like making excuses for how my life turned out, right? And it took me years to realize that actually, no, but Iraq has been such a big part of my life. It is who I am. And actually because of the politics in my own country, you know, I was in exile with my family. We were refugees and we went through our own hardships and it isn't, you know, it isn't competition who's gone through more hardship, right? And so I think for best, quite often, it is that complicated relationship, there's survivors uh, guilt, but there's also this sense that a lot of people that fled Iraq, fled Iraq because of politics. So they want to stay away from politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they've avoided it, they, they will encourage their children to stay far away from it also. But then they don't think, uh, but they're very charitable. So there's charity, but there isn't strategic giving. Right. Right. So charity. I mean, it's incredible what the Iraqi diaspora and, and some of the people I know and a lot of people, by the way, prefer to do it on the on the on the quiet. Right. So they don't want to advertise it. They're, you know, I'm you don't have these big fancy events and so forth, but they're really, you know, from family to family. They have really supported different uh, communities inside of Iraq. And that's amazing. There isn't the strategic giving. There isn't the setting up of a foundation saying we will give it this way. There are a few families that do, mm-hmm. very, very, very few. And a lot of them actually were influenced by being in the United States because in the U.S. there is that very much more you know, charitable type of giving that is strategic, that's declared and so forth. But it's, but it's tiny compared to how much influence, knowledge, and wealth that Iraqis abroad have. But like I said, it's a very complicated relation. And unfortunately, not enough people think strategically in that way. And they're scared that their intentions are questioned.
0: Mina, I, I really want to thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's your personal experience uh, with you know living outside of Iraq and being part of the diaspora. I think that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners because this has become, you know very common in our region. And so I really appreciate um, you sharing that about yourself. Um, Mina LaRebi, what advice do you give young Arab men and women? who wish to enter politics in the Arab world, given that you know the ins and outs of Arab politics or regional politics very well. So um, what's your two cents?
1: I would say be careful of politics, but I would say that public service doesn't have to be tied into politics alone. And that there are many ways to serve your country um, in a public setting but you could also choose a career path that isn't in politics where you can still serve your country so i would say think about how you can actually contribute to society contribute to the betterment of your country however for those who have a keen interest in politics and want to get involved in politics we need better politicians so we definitely encourage them what i would say is, is is know your history know your history well uh, know who the players are and know that things change. There are no uh, constant friends and allies. There are constant interests. Be aware of what those interests inside your country is, but also that external forces that would uh, that would uh, play a, a role in it.
0: Mina, I am eternally grateful for your time. I know how busy you are. Um, thank you for being with us today on the Diploman Podcast.
1: Thank you, Karma. It was a real treat. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure.